Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. If you feel like your allergies are having a comeback tour and you want relief quickly, you can try Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny, and itchy nose and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Hey, just before we get started, Switched On Pop is going to be doing a mini-series on summer festivals, and we're looking for listener stories of moments of ecstatic musical joy at a festival. If you have a short one- or two-minute story, send it to us in a voice note to submissions at switchedonpop.com, and you might hear your voice in the show. Welcome to Switched On Pop. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. Mark Ronson has a CV too long to list here. Suffice to say, he's a musician who's worked with everyone from Amy Winehouse, Lady Gaga to Dua Lipa. He has one of the highest selling singles of all time with Bruno Mars and Uptown Funk and basically has just been making really good music since about the turn of the millennium. He's also the presenter of one of our all-time favorite TED Talks on the history of sampling, and he's been continuing that journey of musical curiosity with the Apple TV show Watch the Sound, which explores the untold stories behind music creation and the lengths producers and creators are willing to go to find the perfect sound. Today, Mark is the guest on another episode of Modern Classics. Mark, welcome to the show. Hello. Like all of our guests for the Modern Classics series, Mark has brought a song that he believes deserves to dwell in the modern pop pantheon. Mark, what have you brought for us? I picked um, Genuine Pony. It's crazy to think that a song to me that's like a modern classic is actually nearly 30 years old. But I guess in the <laughs> canon of, you know, when we think of classics, for me, my brain still goes to Beatles, Stones, TV Wonder, like that. So it feels like a modern classic. Genuine Pony, produced by Timbaland. Let's get a little of, of this in our ears. I'm just a Mark, what do you think makes this track endure? As as you said, after 30 years, it still slaps. It still yeah. explodes out of the speakers. When you first asked me to pick a modern classic, the first place my brain went was like, what was a record that there was like a full paradigm shift? Like when that record came out, what was there? Nothing was the same. And I remember it really from a purely DJ standpoint, because I just started DJing probably, I've been DJing for a couple of years in, in hip hop clubs in New York. And there was a very set tempo that your entire hip hop set was, was kind of arced around. And there was some like more old school hip hop that tended to be faster, like Big Daddy Kane and, and Rocky. 
then hip-hop in the 90s got kind of slower and moody. I got you stuck off the realness. We be the infamous, you heard of us. Official Queensbridge murder. And then you had Puffy and Biggie a little more shiny. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. But it was all in this, like... 90 beats per minute to like 110 and that's where your set resigned and this song just came out that just suddenly had to like you didn't even know how to play it in the middle of the night you just had to stop <laughs> all the other songs that you were playing because there was nothing to mix this into it was 60 beats per minute it was like nothing else and it was so good that it warranted that you know if you stopped the song that you were playing in a hip-hop club at like a certain time the music stopped like you could you were in danger of having a bottle thrown at you in the <laughs> dj booth or, or something you know like this was not this was not something that you would you would do unless you really knew that what you were about to play was going to be such an event that everybody there would just be this rush of the room so not only was it sonically so inventive and like nothing that came before it anyway but from a dj perspective it was like oh shit and then you know slowly after that timbaland was so influential and then you had the dirty south movement and all the atlantis hip-hop and stuff from texas that was coming out that was around that tempo and slowly you could build an entire set in this tempo but at that moment it was just an island it was this record that was so good you couldn't mix it with anything and it was fucking and it just sounded like it came from outer space too So a lot of people know this as a slow, sexy jam. The tempo is compelling in that way. But what else in the sonics of this song make it a modern classic for you? Well, it sounds incredible. I mean, there's a lot of mythology around how Timbaland, what, how he came up with that sound because it was around the same time as Aaliyah, One in a Million. which is a song that I probably, I like even more. It moves me more, but it maybe wasn't like a dance for a classic the same way that Pony was, but the same thing, slow tempo. And it just, I remember like, we would all be like, how did he do that? Oh, apparently he was like playing with his drum machine and by accident he turned the tempo knob down from 120 to 60 and invented this new sound. I mean, there was great, like we were just all going like, we wanted to know how this came about. And there were all these ridiculous rumors. I, I still don't know exactly what it was, but it sounded like nobody had ever gone that tempo before. Sonically, it was insane. Timbaland, you know, you see him in the studio when he's building beats. He's always doing this kind of like half beatboxy thing with his mouth. A lot of the rhythms and the interesting things come from that. And that's, you can hear his breaths in it. It's actually funny listening to it because I only ever listen to it at like 200 decibels in a nightclub <laughs> to hear it quietly in headphones right now. Like there's a lot of weird shit going on in the background there too. Like Timberland, we forget because he just had so many hits, like how eccentric his brain actually was. Like he's a, he's kind of a weirdo disguised as like a kind of handsome, <laughs> like built dude. Like he's like a, like a lot of great you know, really creative producers. Pharrell's a weirdo. Like, you don't make music like that without being odd. And uh, Timberland, the same thing. And, and the way he samples his own voice and just plays it on a keyboard for the different pitches. And that was kind of a classic hip-hop 
thing for like you know the 80s since the advent of sampling people would take like a funny voice like a boat and just go bo 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 you know <laughs> but like just everything in this song is just like it just had never been happened before and it had the sonic presence of like it's sparse enough that like that's why Dr. Dre productions cut through so hard because there's so much room for that kick and that snare and those frequencies to just hit. So I, I think for so many reasons it's just a classic. And then I, I haven't even spoken about the the vocal really, which is I'm a beat guy, so vocal is always a little bit mm. secondary to me, vocal and melody, but it's like as far as a sexy slow jam goes, like pony ride it it's just like it's so instant and it's kind of like naughty enough that like you know it feels dirty in the club but then it's pg enough that like you could get it on daytime radio and kids think it's fun to sing as a producer we can get really into the sonics of a sound and for so many listeners the vocal is first but what I think is interesting about this track is that the production is also vocal based. You know, Timbaland is famous for beatboxing his ideas into a mic and then programming those ideas. And you get all these weird little ear candy moments, these sort of like strange lasers and things that don't pop up in a normal beat because it's coming from Timbaland's mouth. And then obviously, as you were saying, the synth itself as well as also kind of its own vocal line. Yeah, there's something very instant about when when you use a vocal but in the production of a song that's just really instant because it's like, I know that. It's a little bit of a different concept, but in Uptown Funk, it's a group vocal from the, from the start. I mean, Bruno's in the lead, but all that this is, that ice go, like it's, it's like mm. eight people. Mm. There's something about gangs of human voices it's like the listener just subconsciously hears and goes oh that's a lot of fun because that's a lot of people saying that the same way that Timberling uses his like it's like it's almost like i know that sound like i probably made that sound once before but like <laughs> now it's in a song that like the baby crying and and are you that somebody it's the same thing it's like that is a song that's somewhere from my life uh, that's a sound and it's familiar Wow, I've, I've, I haven't quite thought about it that way, but that it is sort of tapping into something ancient and communal every time you're like grinding on the dance floor to Pony by Genuine. <laughs> yeah, I think of it like also like the background vocals in I'm Not In Love by 10CC, just the way that those are ahs are forming the pads. It could be a synth, but the fact that it's the Oz and it's a human voice is like, I think it's just like a bit more of a warm like blanket around the soul. It just gives us this feeling. Hearing you describe, you know, you and your friends trying to understand what Timbaland was doing in this song, I, I, I think that's people are still trying to do so because I went on online to try and figure out the magic behind this opening baseline and if you go on like reddit and places people no one really seems to know people have theories and hypotheses but no one really seems to know and i found an interview with timbaland and he describes there was kind of a certain 
level of accident with this too. Like he was scrolling through a rack mount and then found this particular effect and it just suddenly clicked. And it made me wonder if you've had similar moments, like just something accidental happens. You find the right, you, you scroll to the right sound, you play the note and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's it. Can you relate to that feeling? It's kind of the entire theme of our TV show, Watch the Sound as well. It's like these accidents like... You know, Roger Lynn made the Lynn drum to sound as much like a real drummer and a real snare drum as he could. And that's why his machine was so, like, coveted, because it was, like, fancy. And then Prince <laughs> turns the fucking snare drum by accident one day. It goes, like, from to, like, and then suddenly that's the fucking coolest sound ever. And then you get drummers tuning their drum to sound like a Lin drum now it's like all those and i actually i was working on it now because of technology as well and programs like ableton you can it, they're very creative and you can make accidents even sort of more easily and you can just throw a loop in there and turn the pitch all the way till it's so high it's indistinguishable and then you just get a weird sound that suddenly makes your song cooler i think that Everything is, you know, there's a great deal of songwriting and music creation that, of course, comes from the, the main, you know, tenets that we think of, like the song and the melody and the thing. But like all the other shit is definitely accidents. I mean, even like plunking your hand down on a piano keyboard and like get a weird voicing or a cluster chord that you wouldn't think to play. It's like that can sometimes just set you off and running as chord one of a new song. Like I, I think it's so much of it is, is, is those happy accidents. Shout out to AstroPro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. If you have allergies, then I've got a familiar scenario for you. You wake up on a beautiful spring morning and peek outside to get a feel of that nice breeze, but then you start to feel a little tickle in your nostrils. That tickle is the spring air telling you to go be a hermit and avoid the outside because you'll soon be a sniffling, sneezing mess. But don't listen to it. Allergies suck, but a good nasal spray makes all the difference. I personally learned that I suffer from adult onset allergies, and it's a real bummer. But a good allergy med makes all the difference for my ability to go out in the springtime to smell magnolias, my favorite flower. If you also want relief quickly to get back to breathing in the spring air, you can try Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. I think a lot of people know of Mark Ronson as the Mark Ronson presents on a marquee. You're the behind the scenes producer who might be on stage playing guitar, but you also have this very engaged public life with your exploration of music. As Nate said at the top, you had this great TED talk on sampling that totally captured the world. And you now have this TV series, this podcast. I guess I'm curious what's driving you to ask these questions in your career and take your private production curiosities into public conversations. I think that maybe if I was like some kind of musical prodigy or like from the beginning, I was 
amazing at one instrument that really was is was my thing or i i could sing or i guess what i mean is cuz i've never i've never had that even growing up i always just knew that i loved music and i wanted to kind of just like swallow up whole everything about it around me so in my high school band i was the shittiest musician so i was like okay well i'm never <laughs> going to be slash i'm not going to be some so i better like study all these other things and i got into producing but then i also worked like writing for heavy metal fanzines and and interned at Rolling Stone in the summers. I just knew that I wanted to consume everything around this thing that I love because there was no one thing that I was good at enough that said like here's your path into music. So by the time I became a producer, these sort of miscellaneous things that I had picked up, DJing, sort of uh knowing a lot about music and the history of music and all these things. They those end up as helpful things in the tool belt of a of a producer in general. So I think that I've never stopped wanting to learn more about that stuff and I I don't see myself really as more of a creator of music than I do as a fan of it either. So the podcast and talking to people about it, like talking to David Byrne, like I'm not trying to put David Byrne and me on the same level and be like, hey man, do you also feel like when you go to the studio this happens? It's like, dude, when you fucking made Stop Making Sense, you know, like I, I'm very happy and <laughs> want to know those kind of things. So I think that's 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 it. And then I also like a challenge. Like I think that, you know, Kim Rosenfeld from... um from Apple came to me and said, I, I want to make a show that's a little bit like your TED Talk in the spirit of it, like educational but fun and things that I didn't think I cared about or cared to know about, I ended up learning about. So that was it. So I, I like that challenge. I mean, it's it's not that dissimilar to when Amy Winehouse, I'm actually back in the studio that I met her. That's just literally the room that we first met and we first had a conversation about music mm. and she just said like i want to make something that sounds like the 60s girl groups that they play down at my local and i was like cool what's that and she played me the shangri-las i of course knew it like very outsider like i think i probably only knew it from like a Scorsese film where they're like beating some guy up and throwing him <laughs> into a trunk to like one of those songs. But but um, I listened to it and I was like, okay, I've never made anything like this before, but I like it and I really like you and I like the idea of this challenge. So I think it's a, I think it's kind of all those things mixed together. And maybe it's just because I didn't fucking finish school that I feel like I need to constantly <laughs> still be learning something. Well, sometimes unfinished business there yeah i want to talk more about the tv show it's called watch the sound and it explores the technology and personalities behind your favorite sounds and when you say you approach music as a fan you can really see that in the show you're someone who's genuinely excited to learn more and the viewer gets to inhabit that role as well one episode that may relate sort of to pony and genuine and timbaland is this episode on auto-tune and vocal processing. I think it really resonated with us because we wrote a book called Switched on Pop, and in the epilogue, we wrote about Paul McCartney's 2019 song, Get Enough. I've been looking for love, but it gets me nowhere. Oh, 
surprised because he uses synthesizers and auto-tune and drum programming and they're like wait a minute this is sir paul embracing all of this and in one episode of watch the sound you talk to sir paul and he didn't really seem to have a lot of hesitation about embracing new techniques no because everybody forgets because we're so warm and fuzzy when we think of the beatles because it's been instilled in us for so long and it's so familiar but like you listen to, I listen to like Revolver every now and then I'm like damn that fucking drums sound like tough <laughs> and nasty and there's a shaker that's like so aggressive in the right speaker so not only was there stuff like kind of a little more badass than we maybe remember it but they were always on the cutting edge of technology that's why at that moment they were always pushing the engineers in Abbey Road and Sean Lennon talks about it a little bit later in the, in that same episode about his dad and and you know some of the times too they would always have to like John loved to double track his vocal and then sometimes he'd get a little lazy and was like can't you just invent something that like makes it sound like I double tracked it already and literally that's why they came up with like the first prototype digital analog delay pedal or whatever that was so yeah Paul was always on the cutting edge of everything I mean I remember when I worked with him on his um, new album and I think at that point I've had varying points in my career where I not get lazy, but I think after, yeah, fuck it, I got lazy. <laughs> after um, after Version and Back to Black, and I'd worked so hard to like establish myself after 12 years of sort of banging my head against the wall. I was like, oh, cool. Everyone likes it when I'm the retro guy. I guess I'll just like fucking latch on to that. And I kind of watched people around me and Diplo and people that I was friendly with like really no new technology and I was just falling back to what I had and I remember going in with Sir Paul and thinking like okay I'll do my thing where I just like classic great recorded band arrangements a couple little hip elements and he came in with a CD he had been listening to and the first song he played me that he loved was Climax by Usher and I was like oh my god by Diplo and Ariel Reichstadt and 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 with uh, Nico Muley like arrangement on it and I was just like oh man yeah well I I I was just pretty honest I was like this is great what do you like about this because I'm I'm not very good at this like that's what we're looking for here he's like I just like the space and stuff um, and at varying degrees of my career from working closely with Diplo or a Blood Pop or Kevin Parker from Tame Impala like I have really gone back to like, okay, I don't want to just lean on someone else to do the cool tricks and the programming, like on the stuff. I want to learn how to do it myself. So anyway, Sir Paul always seems to be like, he's always pushing you and he wants to push his own stuff. And it's kind of amazing. And um, and then the thing that he says, it's really beautiful, which is the thing that inspired us to go and ask Sean to uh, do some digital manipulation, some vocoder stuff with one of his dad 
it's classic records was because Paul says in the episode, he goes, you know, I think if John were around today, he'd be messing with autotune, not not because he needed it to fix his voice, but because he would have loved to play with it. Hmm. And that was John was the one who loved to double track his voice. I mean, Sean tells it and John double tracked his voice because he didn't like the sound of his own voice. Like he actually didn't like the way it sounded alone. So that's why he started doing the double track. But we take the acapella of Hold On and... Sean was a little like, ah, I don't know if we should do this. Like, this is kind of sacrilege. And I was right. just like, don't worry, you could just blame it on me. And there's a scene in the episode where he like, he looks into the camera when I'm not looking and is just like, Mark told me to do this. Like, I didn't even see it till I saw the edit. But um, we do this really interesting stuff and do some sort of more Bonnie Vera style harmonies and things through digital processing with his dad's vocal. It's really neat to think about the ways in which the studio experimentation narrative of the Beatles, which is well known, gets played out in this series. You also have this great moment with Sir Paul and the synthesizer. And I remember, I think the first record I ever got was Abbey Road. And I hadn't recognized at the time how much that was going on there was obscure and new. Uh, Paul plays the Moog synthesizer on Maxwell Silver Hammer. It's very bizarre and ethereal. this great moment in, in in the show about him sort of toiling with the synthesizer so much that the rest of the band is getting upset. And yet today, of course, the synthesizer is the contemporary sound. You have this great exploration into it. I mean, it's even the thing that grabs us with Genuine's Pony, right? It's the like sampling and resynthesizing of the voice. You know, I'm curious, you state in the show that synthesizers were extremely important from the beginning of your music making. Was there something you learned in this exploration of synthesizers that you hadn't understood before? I hadn't really. It's just, you know, the same thing with Stevie Wonder and all the groundbreaking stuff he was doing in the 70s with Tonto, that machine that they built for Mm. him. And it's like, it's funny because those songs are so in our psyche and they have, I wouldn't say the edges have been dulled off of them. Like they, they sound like, hokey or something but like you just forget that they were just using the most cutting edge shit and it was revolutionary at that time because it has become like standards in a way like even something like you are the sunshine of my life that you probably heard at like a thousand weddings and hotel lobbies like that was made with groundbreaking fucking technology at the time that was not able to be made you are the And not only that, even the keyboards, I mean, the clavinet, the sound of superstition, that can't really be, it's, it's, it's more of a keyboard than a synthesizer. But like the guy who invented that machine, the electrical clavinet, like, was like hated Stevie Wonder was outraged because he was like, this is meant to be playing Bach and Beethoven. And who's this guy playing this fucking thing? It's like, well, this guy made your shit cool. So I think that I learned a lot about maybe how I hadn't thought about how synthesizers were kind of um, 
not taboo, but when they first came out, you know, you had these orchestras up in arms, like, we're going to lose our jobs, and mm. the musicians' union wanted to ban certain ones of them. And then Emmy Parker, who's a friend of mine who I grew up with, who, you know, uh, ran artist relations at Moog and then Teenage Instruments, who make the OP1, she has such a wonderful part in that episode because she really reminds us that since we're the kind of tools of people from the margins like Hmm. if you think about it in the realms of pop music and stuff people of color trans people are like wendy carlos was like a trans woman who who was worked so closely with bob moog that like that keyboard wouldn't have come about the way it was and wouldn't have been so artist friendly without her work the fact that herbie hancock like they didn't want to play herbie hancock on mtv you know he was a black artist who did kind of like jazzy music that was suddenly hip-hop influence and then suddenly you're making these sounds that are just so amazing because no one's ever heard them before but that you have they become so wildly popular that they have no choice but to play it. So this it's this amazing thing. I had never thought about synthesizers being outsider art before, hmm. but they, they do become these, these tools for that. You know, I think another technology you explore that's also, I like the way you put it, like kind of like an instrument for outsiders might be sampling. And in the episode on sampling, you sit down with one of your idols, the DJ and producer, DJ Premier, who's produced for everyone from Gangstar to D'Angelo to Nasca, Christina Aguilera. Premier might not be as well known, I, I think maybe as like other superstar producers like Timbaland. Um so I, I wonder like what what do you hear about his approach to sampling that is so iconic? He is his is a paradigm shift as well. Like he and you can chart the way his production is sort of evolves over the first few gangstar records. Like the first few is like, you know, Gangstar was known for their jazzy sound, sampling Charles Mingus bass lines and putting it over great breaks. It was very classy, but it was what other people were doing as well. It was just a very good version of it. And then there's this moment on the third Gangstar album where Premier just reinvents his sound. And what he does is he invented the boom-bap sound, which is something that we still call it today. He chopped up samples into little micro stabs and horns and replayed them himself because the technology, the MPC-3000, had these 16 pads and was kind of like well-designed to do that. And he just invented an entirely different sound. And it was so tough. Instead of taking drum loops, say like the... He would just sample just the kick and snare and make this like... Like this heavy swing. And these samples and hits and everything was syncopated together. And it was like, it was kind of like rock and roll energy. Mm. I mean, they, you know, mm. that time Gangstar started going out on the road with Rage Against the Machine because it just had this like hard the energy and just like, it was just incredible. It was so inventive. It was so clever. And that's why I wanted to become a hip hop producer. I mean, I'm staring at my drum machine. I mean, I'll just hold it up because <laughs> I. I bought this machine, the MPC-3000, because this is what DJ Premier used, my hero. And, like, actually, this one is even actually... I got signed when we went to do uh, the nice. show. You can... <laughs> but um, what? Beautiful. Hot rod orange and blue. 
Yeah, that was I got that when I was producing my first record, Nika Costa, in L.A. And I was like, I'm not going to get fucking soft out here in L.A. and forget where I'm from. So I painted my <laughs> NPC New York Knicks colors. I <laughs> but I do like, yeah, I wanted to do that thing that DJ Premier did. And, and even up to my first record, the Nika Costa, Like a Feather, the way that the beat goes in that, the dun 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 The idea of chopping different samples from a jazz riff and playing, replaying them yourself across the pads of the MPC was completely influenced by him. And there's a moment in the show where I remind him, he doesn't remember, but he came in the booth one time when I was DJing the album release party for D'Angelo Voodoo. And I'm playing this song and it hasn't come out yet. And uh, he comes in the booth and I'm so, f I've never met him. I'm starstruck. I'm thinking like, why is he in here? He's like, yo, he goes, what's this record? And in my head, I was thinking he's going to be like, who the hell is ripping off my entire sound? Like, I didn't do this. Like, what is this? And I go, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's Nika Costa, um, sir. Like, I produced it. And he's like, he's just kind of stands there for like a minute. And then for the next two minutes, the whole remainder of the song, he's just bobbing his head like this, like nice. so hard, like so into it. And it was, it's still one of the top five musical moments that's ever happened in my life and something with a hero. And I remind him in the episode and he's like, oh yeah. He's like, I sure the <laughs> funk did. I sure the funk did. He's like, oh, that was dope. And it was just such a crazy thing. And that happens a lot when you're ripping off or you think you're ripping off something you love or you're so in debt to your heroes. But actually, like, you do something weird along the way that changes it into your own thing and they can hear it and not even hear themselves in it, you know? I feel like something I, I, I recognize about, there seems to be a trend in all of this work where you feel really driven to explore musical paradigm shifts. You know, from genuine tempo changes and manipulated synth vocals to subterranean reverbs, talking with some of the best music producers in the world. In this investigation, are there paradigm shifts that you hear are happening now in popular music? I think there's two things that just are undeniably, like in most modern popular songs, which is like the the warping of hi-hats and the crazy rhythms or the and the kind of like, you know, the way that the Ableton sound wore upon them and then the vocal chop, like the fact of which came a lot from Diplo and Snake and people like that of turning the vocal chop into like the secondary hook or sometimes the main hook. Those are the only, everything else to me feels a bit just like progression and an evolve, sonic evolving of all the things that have happened before. There's not a shitload of stuff in even trap music that Three Six Mafia weren't doing 25 years ago. It just sounds like it's on fucking steroids right now. I hear a connection between those those warped drums and um, the vocal chops and a lot of the technologies you explore uh, on Watch the Sound, auto-tune sampling, synthesis, like these were met with hostility and dismissal when they first arrived on the scene. And then we're eventually hailed and embraced. And there's a moment I, I that really struck me when you're talking about um, listening to, I think it was Cher's Believe for the first time when yeah. it came out in like 98. And you were like, I thought this was pretty corny when it came out. And <laughs> yeah. listening now, it's like, I, I, I hear it so differently. No matter how hard 
Like, I'm wondering, is there a way you try and listen with open ears? Like, how how can we listen in a way that is accepting, I guess? Yeah, I think that I'd rather hear something that is, like, fully progressive and production-wise doing something that sounds like from the future and uh, uh, that I actually don't like. Like, I'd rather listen to something like that that, like, melodically and harmonically is not pleasing to me, but there's something weird going on in it than just somebody, like, writing a quote-unquote hit song over the same four chords Mm. and it's just, like, obvious and derivative. So I'm always, like, listening. And, you know, I spent so much of my life as a DJ that I, I always have to kind of just skim the top 20 to be like oh is there some new shit that i like or that i could maybe work into my set so i'm just not that like troglodyte old guy that doesn't (laughs) like listen to any new shit so so i i i do think that i am listening with open ears a lot of the time um out of a curiosity thing i mean it's weird now that when i'm home like I, i don't have any way to listen to music other than a record player so that's obviously like a very like specific thing of what i'm listening to there but yeah for my for my work and my own professional curiosity i do like to keep an open ear and listen to stuff mark this has been so much fun you know i I think what i love about your approach to make music and listening to music is how you can just keep peeling back layers like we start with the song pony by genuine and it just takes us in all these different directions through history, through technology, through personalities. It's it's just so fun to kind of spend a minute in your musical brain. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm psyched to check it out. Switchdown Pop is produced by Nate Sloan, Charlie Harding, and Megan Lubin. We're edited by Jolie Myers and engineered by Brandon McFarland. Iris Gottlieb does our amazing illustrations, and Abby Barr dials it up on the social media. Our executive producers are Nishat Kurwa and Hannah Rosen, and we're members of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. You can listen to more episodes of Switched on Pop anywhere you listen to podcasts i'm talking apple i'm talking spotify i'm talking overcast i'm talking google box i'm talking slick slack i'm talking other things that i'm making up as i'm as i'm going along and if if that's too confusing for you there's always our website www.switchedonpop.com also thanks to jbl for hooking us up with the gear we need to make our show on the road as we visit friends and family this summer we love talking to you on social media so please reach out at switched on pop the twitter the instagram we're there and we want to know what you're listening to check us out next week when we are launching a new mini series on summer festivals and until then thanks thanks for listening for listening
One final shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. You know what's a terrible question? What's your favorite part of having nasal allergies? I don't know. Absolutely nothing. Luckily, you might be able to find some relief with Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's astaproallergy.com. Use this directive for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.